I remember all the bands that played the show were like, Hey, we have a record too. Do you want to sell our record? And I was like, I can do that. You know? So like, cool. They sell for $4. You want to buy it from us for two? So like took, you know, a bunch of records off of a bunch of different bands that had played or like some labels had distros or whatever. And I started kind of carrying that around. And as the more shows I went to, I started having like this diverse stock that like, you know, again, half of it was like records I had kind of bought at stores or off of bands and didn't want anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I started having these like local bands or touring bands releases in this box and the box kept growing and kept growing. At some point I was like, I should do my own. So I released a CD for a friend's band from DC. And then after that, I put a seven inch out. From Richmond, Virginia, you may be familiar with the record store Vinyl Conflict. For the past nine years, it has been owned by today's guest, Bobby Egger. Bobby is a fan of punk and hardcore music, who, as you will hear today, has taken the skills he has honed over the years to help make an impact in the culture of punk rock and independent music, either with the store itself, its record label, or his labels, Headcount, and his hip hop imprint, Fantastic Damage. In this interview, we go over Bobby's path through hardcore and labels his experience of running Vinyl Conflict, and some thoughts on both bands and businesses in this current COVID-19 pandemic. So with that, here's my interview with Bobby. Enjoy. So how did you get into uh, punk and hardcore? I think my first initiation into it probably came through, I'm, I'm having to assume like your skateboard videos, and I, I'm trying to like figure out I definitely like heard some cool bands on the radio that maybe were like my first introductions to it. Right. So by the time I was going to hardcore shows, I was already kind of like going to punk shows. But when I say punk shows, I mean like kind of bigger. I was going to see like Dropkick Murphys or Rancid and that sort of stuff at like, you know, bigger clubs like 930 Club or Nations and stuff like that. Uh, my first introduction to hardcore um I was going to the Van Skate Park in Woodbridge, and a bunch of these guys had a, a company called Wolfpack Skateboards, which was actually yep. Chris Jordan and Doug Quinn. Um, and they, I was buying boards from them because I thought it was really sick that like there was like an independent company of local dudes. And they released a CD on a moniker they were calling Jaybird Records, which was also them, maybe the band as well. But they released Dead Serious, which is a Richmond hardcore band. That was my first introduction to hardcore. I like, you know, I was already listening to punk. Um, I can't quite say if I had heard any hardcore bands just yet, but this was like different and cool. You know, from there, I definitely checked some other bands out, but I remember what really just spawned everything was, I was like, yo, if these guys ever play a show, I want to go see them. I want to go see them. And they're like, cool. They're playing on Saturday in Richmond. And I was like, awesome, I have to go see him. I have to go see him. And I don't think I had been to Richmond at this point for, like, a show. Um, How are you at this point? I was 14. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so they're like, yeah, they're playing at this club called Twisters. Get there early. It's going to sell out. And I was like, oh, awesome. So my dad brought me and a friend that was at the skate park, Chris Godshock. 
lives in LA now. Um, so lived in Richmond for a long time and we were like, yeah, we want to go see dead serious. Those rules. I don't think I had a flyer or anything for the show. I just got all the information like where twisters was. And, uh, my dad took us down to that and it was Dave Brown's wedding show. Uh, so without oh, wow. any of the bands were, it was dead serious shark attack, American nightmare, count me out in bar fight. And I was hooked. It It was just psycho. Um, You know, being 14, just kind of seeing the energy from that was really gripping. Um, And then just from there, it kind of, you know, spiraled. Just checking out. And what was it about? What was it about it that really kind of like stuck with you? The first thing that I noticed was when I walked in, you know, Twisters there was like no barrier and like i know that you know if you were already in a hardcore or whatever that's like part of the deal but not having previously been exposed to that and i guess going to only bigger shows this is like probably the smallest club i had ever been to at that point at that age there was no barrier and i just remember being like wait but what if somebody gets on stage they're like they jump off and i was like but what if someone punched the singer and they're like, then everybody in the crowd is going to jump on that guy. And I was just like, wait, this is just open format. This is so cool. You know, obviously it wasn't that violent. Well, arguably, but I just really liked that. It was, you know, everybody at the show seemed to be, you know, between a certain group of, you know, an age bracket. And there was like tables set up of people selling their own bands, merchandise. There was no like, I didn't know any different at this point. So to see, you know, there wasn't this divide, like I could be there and I could be doing this and this could be my band and I could be behind that table selling my records. You know, it was very apparent at that age. I was like, Whoa, I can, I can do something in this. If I put my energy towards it, it just was very grabbing. I just had never felt that way with anything before. It's really cool. Right now you are or not right now, but for a while you've owned um, <laughs> Final Conflict. So from that period, you, you said, you know, you could see yourself doing something in it. Did you do anything in, in punk or hardcore? Like, did you try running, like, uh, labels or anything like that before you started running the record store? Or did you play in bands or anything? Or how did you advance towards the record store? I've done a whole bunch in that world. <laughs> like, uh so in high school, I would have, I started doing a distro before I really realized what I was doing. I was kind of modeled off the fact that I saw these people like with the tables of stuff. I remember the first time I ever set a distro up. And again, I didn't really know it was anything. It was a show in Woodbridge, kind of near Manassas. I can't quite remember the name of the venue. It was off of 234. I think it was just called the warehouse. Or the ba- Maybe it was called the basement. My friend's bands were playing. I think Castaside was supposed to play and they canceled the day of. I remember this band Edge of Hope played from Maryland. And I want to say my friend's band TAEA played and maybe a couple other local bands like Love in the Time of Cholera or something. I had a bunch of records I wanted to sell. I don't think I was like selling online or anything yet. But I brought a shoebox full of records to the show. And I was just like, I'm just going to set a table up and sell them like I've seen people do. So I brought a box of seven inches to the show and I like sold most of them it was just stuff that i had had and didn't want anymore and i remember all the bands that played the show were like hey we have a record too do you want to sell our record and i was like i can do that you know so like 
cool, they sell for $4. You want to buy them from us for two? So I like, took, you know, a bunch of records off of a bunch of different bands that had played or like some labels had distros or whatever. And I started kind of carrying that around. And as the more shows I went to, I started having like this diverse stock that like, you know, again, half of it was like records I had kind of bought at stores or off of bands and didn't want anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I started having these like local bands or touring bands releases in this box and the box kept growing and kept growing at some point. I was like, I should do my own. So I released a CD for a friend's band from DC. And then after that, I put a seven inch out for another band from DC. So the first CD, the name has not aged well. The band was called the hate crimes. Um, right. Every time the band was a different ethnicity and it was a hardcore band, you know, like, uh, right. Everybody in the band was from a different background. So like, that was kind of the, the gist. It was like, it was a very politically driven band. I think with time, it just doesn't sound so hot. And I don't think there would be a new band called that. But I threw some money in and got copies of the CD. So then I was taking that around and trading that. And then eventually I put a seven inch out for a band called Bailout, which actually went on to be Coke Bust. From there, I was on message boards like the Bridge Nine board and Viva La Vinyl and other stuff. The second record I put out was a band called Our Times from New York. And then the third one was actually the Coke Bust demo. I started releasing records and I was trading with other labels and, you know, all of a sudden the shoe box, which was now turning into like a real seven inch box and then two boxes, it started getting really like diverse. And I was trading with labels all over the world that like just had put their information on message boards or whatever. I was in high school when I was doing this. I think that CD, I must've been 16 or 17. Wow. And then the seven inch, I must've been 18. I think I, I was definitely still in high school when I released it, I just can't remember if I was a junior or a senior and I was a year behind. So yeah, 17 or 18 when I did my first seven inch. And were you funding this just by like money from work or like, was it coming from the records you were selling or? A little bit of both. And it's always kind of been that way. Um, right. Yeah. Like I was working, you know, I was working, I had different jobs. I definitely worked for Baskin Robbins for a long time. I, definitely was making a lot on the sales between like online and at these shows I was bringing this so I was bringing this box to any show that I went to kind of not knowing if I was allowed to set up or not so So you're going just as a fan sometimes and bringing I was going as well one I was going as a fan 100% of the time I never I never went to anything to set up right these were just things that I was going to and I had this box of seven inches and if I went and looked like there's an extra table I would go and ask the promoter or the door person, like, hey, I have a distro. Can I set up at this? You know, sometimes they said no, or sometimes they'd be like, yeah, you got to give me $20 to set up or whatever. And uh, (laughs) most of the time they didn't care. I just, I do remember a few times I like got charged and maybe I didn't set up or maybe I did. I don't remember if they were like big shows. But yeah, I mean, I was setting up at like pretty big shows in DC, some pretty big shows in Richmond. And I was just a kid and uh, it was like really crazy to me that like people were like flocking to the table and buying stuff because they didn't know me or you know with time they did i was going to a lot of shows everywhere so it was cool it was like i was going to dc shows and picking up dc bands records but i was going to richmond and picking up richmond bands records and i would sell a lot of records when i would set up somewhere else so like it was funny like dc and richmond i would sell okay but when i would take those same records i was picking up and selling them in like say woodbridge or manassas or fredericksburg I would do really well because there wouldn't be other competition on the tables or like, you know, back then there's like 
always a distro at the shows. So when I was setting up at shows that didn't have a distro, I mean, I made a lot of, a lot of connection in like the Fredericksburg area of all places. Um, now, were you trying to go to college at this time or, or did you have like a plan for like what you were kind of thinking you were going to do with your life? No, I had no idea. I didn't really care. I didn't really like have any ambition for college at the time, if I'm being perfectly honest. Another little tidbit that falls into line with this story, I went on tour with the band while I was still in high school, too. So this falls in with a lot of really weird connections that happened later in life. But uh, there's a DC band called The Goons, a street punk band. And I remember they posted something on one of their social medias that they were going to go on tour and they needed a merch guy. And I had never done that, but I was familiar with all the guys. Uh, One of my friends from high school dated their drummer. At the time, Tom O'Mackle, my friend Beth, was dating Tom. So Beth used to drive me to shows in D.C. and stuff. So I, like, wrote. I was like, hey, I want to go on tour with you guys. And they're like, it's long. And I was like, I don't know. I just got to find out if I'm allowed to or not. I was 18, but I had not graduated high school. This is the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I was old enough to do it, but maybe not responsible enough to do it. Um, <laughs> and they... They took me, uh, the tour ended up being a warp tour. Oh, I wow. went for three weeks at age 18 doing merch for them. And I, you know, I brought some records with me on that, which didn't do so hot. People didn't really care, but I was really there to be doing merch for the goons. So, you know, I got to tour a bit, well, a lot and just kind of see the different markets. And I met a lot of bands through that, like people I still talk to. It's pretty crazy. Cause, like the headliners were psycho looking at it now but i think everybody was just like still coming up like warp tour wasn't massive i mean it was really big don't get me wrong it was like thousands of people but it wasn't like that ten thousand it wasn't like riot fest or anything yet what year was this so i like this was 2004 so that was pretty cool and i you know i met a lot of labels and bands and stuff through that too so when I came home from that, I finished my I finished high school. I was probably up to my second or third seven inch at that time, and I did go to college uh, in Aston, Pennsylvania, at a school called Newman. They had given me a scholarship, and I didn't do good in high school. And I thought that was going to be my chance to go to college because I actually did not properly get accepted into VCU. I had applied for a bunch of other places, and I actually got denied by most of the schools I applied to. It was on the border of Delaware and there's really nothing around. And, you know, immediately I jump on the fucking bridge and I'm bored and I, I'm in this area. What do I do? Where do I go? And I got hooked up with some other message boards for like the Philadelphia punk scene on like the Delaware punk scene and stuff. And I started going to shows up in that area. So I was going to school uh, at that time. I was going to school for communications. I wanted to do video editing and the school's program was like, you know, I signed up for it and they like showed all the equipment. But then when I took the class, it was, it was like a book class. Like you didn't get to touch any equipment at all. Oh, damn. Um, Yeah. So I felt like I got swindled and I'm up at this like weird Christian college that I wasn't really religious at and really just totally isolated. So I really put all my time into my label, which is like not really knowing a ton of people, but like liking bands. I was driving up to Mm -hmm. like, Philly, but also New Jersey. I had a car. Uh, I was coming back to DC for shows, but I think that's when my distro really got like kind of psychotic and like really like spread out. Cause now I was going to Philly shows and meeting a whole ilk of people I didn't know 
I had my distro with all these records that were not the same records that were at every show. And I was trading and watching bands I liked. And I made a bunch of friends with like, it just kind of spawned from there. My college had like a shipping area. So I was able to like run my label and actively like ship and get proper shipping supplies and stuff. And then somewhere in that junction too, I'm getting all the timelines mixed up. I did a band called Full Nelson in the Fredericksburg area. I want to say it was like, I want to say I had graduated high school at this point. But I also remember moving away was a lot of why the band kind of slowed down. Again, being that age, everything seems like a lot busier. I'm going to get all the and years what wrong were you doing on that. In that band? I sang for Full Nelson. And it was based out of Fredericksburg. I was the one member that like would travel down. So, you know, there's a lot of shows happening at like Casey's Music Alley and there's a place called Shooters and there's a little warehouse that was behind a tattoo shop. So we were playing some of those shows. Oh, now I'm starting to confuse myself. It's been too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that 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 band still continued when I went up to college. So I was trying to get them shows up in Philly and I would come down every now and still play shows, but it wasn't as sporadic, you know, and I was setting the distro up when my band would play. So did you end up uh, finishing college? Eventually. <laughs> yeah. I did that for one year. Yeah, I did okay. that for one year and I dropped out. It was just, I was too isolated. I missed all my friends. My interest was like in music, but I like, you know, running the label, I like knew I couldn't live off of it at that point. So I don't know. I like really at that point still had no true direction, but I remember like, you know, I took a business course and I definitely like wrote my like essay at the end of school on my label and got like a, like a fucking crazy a and the business professor's like wait you're doing what and it's like yeah, it's nothing dude it's just like you know i trade on message boards and shit and the guy's like no wait you like you're doing like I, I explained it to him he's just like this is crazy uh but at the point i was just like i don't know man i'm just like you know doing this for fun um <laughs> i came back the year after and i was living in woodbridge with my dad I think that's like when I went full force. Like that's when I was going to every show I could. I was working full time and I just went like full bore. I was releasing records like every few months. So that all this was all done on a record label called Headcount Records, which still sort of exists when I put something out not from Richmond. I was releasing a new seven inch probably every couple of months. And just Damn, kind of how many releases thing. did you make? Oh, Let's pull up this <laughs> I want to say something probably close to 30 releases now. Oh, wow. Uh, but I can pull it up with the years, so that will make it a little bit more accurate for our conversation. Yeah, the first 7-inch came out in 2005, and it says the CD I did was 2005 as well. So, yeah, I guess the first 7-inch and CD were while I was still in high school. 2006, I guess when I was in college, I only did one. And then in 2007, I put out five 7-inches, three 7-inches. 2008, two seven inches. 2009, I did four seven inches. 2010, I did three seven inches. Oh, man. (laughs) So, yeah, somewhere in there, I released a band, 2009, a band called Seasick. I did two seven inches. I did a split for them, and I did, uh, like, an EP for them. And I went on tour with them. Uh, I went to Europe with them for three weeks. And then that was just, like, a whole other level of psycho addiction as far as getting into like music and bands and just kind of getting to see like a whole nother ilk of like everything else going on out there. I had been on tour with Full Nelson just kind of like on the East coast, but like 
I did three weeks in Europe on this one, and I just got to see, like, Poland and the Czech Republic and Germany and fucking the Netherlands and all sorts of crazy stuff. And it was just like, whoa, the international punk network is just crazy. Uh, we went with this guy, Robert Refuse, who runs Refuse Records out of Poland, and he's been doing that forever. And he really opened me up to, like, a whole different network of people you could trade with. And he introduced me to a lot of, like, international hardcore I had never, you know, been privy to. And that was really cool to like get to experience all that firsthand and like, you know, meet people that I'm still super in touch with. And after that, I got a job in Richmond at a place called the independent label collective. It was a distributor that had like kind of come from the ashes of lumberjack, uh, which is a distributor from like the nineties and early two thousands, uh, all like right. DIY independent labels. So I got a job as a sales rep. I was still living in Northern Virginia, but I was traveling down to work for them. Uh, a couple days a week, going back and forth, still working full-time in Northern Virginia and working at Smash on Sundays, always going. <laughs> um, and that was cool because I got to like actually see the distributor end of things. I got to work with some friends I already knew and made a bunch of new friends. Um, Alex Matessa was like the warehouse manager. Sean Rar, who does 6131, was one of the main CEOs of the company. Tracy Wilson was in a ton of bands and runs her own label and work at deep groove. And it was just like this cool network of people who were like, you know, on the DIY end of the aspect for like, I don't know. I started as an East coast rep and then I took, I think a lot of the United States after that. So I was getting like meet the store guys. Um, right. And it wasn't huge at this era. Like vinyl, the vinyl boom hadn't really exploded yet. Um, but I was getting to deal with pretty cool stores. Like uh, the store I was blanking on is like, we, we dealt with like places like Amoeba and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. Those were in my accounts, but we did get to, you know, take titles that way. So I got like a chance to like, kind of like see how to interact with stores. I was selling for kind of bigger punk rock labels like Beer City, Sympathy for the Record Industry, Frontier, Asian Man Records and stuff like that. So we were like trying to sell those titles to like bigger stores. My job was to sell to the celebrated summers and, uh, you know, Armageddon shops and, you know, places like that. Which is interesting because you and kind of ended up opening something that's more along those lines. Yeah. Well, I didn't open Vinyl Conflict. They were my... Well, running it, running it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I was even working there at this point, but, uh, you know, Brandon and Lauren had opened it and I was a sales rep. So I was bringing them records all the time and obviously hanging out there cause it was a cool store and Brandon's band played everywhere. So I was traveling around to go see that stuff. Uh, right. When the record distributor ended up closing, uh, unfortunately, I think they needed like, I'm trying to remember how it happened. I think they just needed help at the shop and I needed a job. <laughs> so I was like helping out of the store on the weekends and stuff. Um, at this point, yeah, I was helping out at Vinyl Conflict, but I was working door at a, pl- a lot of places. So I was doing door originally at Sprout. And then when Sprout closed, I started doing door at Strange Matter. So I was just constantly meeting music people. I never did any of these steps intentionally to, like, <laughs> advance. It just Set kind you of up for it. Falling in my lap. It just kept falling in my lap. So, right. uh, like, unintentionally. And then at some point during this juncture, I'm starting to work at the store more and more. Started having like 
actual days of the week that I was working at the store. And this all kind of occurred around the time Bray and Lauren ended up having kids. So they moved to Rochester, New York, and uh, we worked out a deal, and I ended up taking over the store in 2012. So did you buy it from them, or like... I did. Yeah, we worked out a deal where, you know, I was looking back, I was a kid, but I think I was 26 at the time. Damn. Um, And I was, you know, essentially making them payments to keep the shop running where I would eventually, I mean... I was I was taking over the ownership, uh, so I, yeah, I, I eventually bought the shop off with them. You had basically, like you had said, kind of been working in every realm up to that, like knowing kind of the nuts and bolts of how that industry basically works, like the buying and selling of records, how to get them. Were you apprehensive at all about doing the store full on from background in that, or did it, did it feel like something that you would be comfortable with? I think, see, it's funny, like, now looking back at all of it, because, like I said, never at any junction, any point of the story did I do any of those things intentionally. You know, like, I never went on a tour of the band in Europe to, like, get label contacts. I never right. worked for the distributor to try to, like, make my label any better. Like, they were all just, like, things that were, like, very interesting to me and, like, dream jobs and, like, you know, stuff yeah. my friends were doing and... um I think by the time that the store was offered on the plate, I had had an opportunity to to really see a lot of really different sides of the industry where I felt comfortable. Like, you know, up until that point, the most responsible responsibility I had in a job was, you know, I was like a assistant manager at ABC store (laughs) or like, you know, a, a key holder at journeys or like, you know, a shift lead at, the Baskin Robbins, like I hadn't really like managed a store or anything before, but I knew enough of like, well, this is how I can source records. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I had already at this point been buying and selling used records just based off of like my shopping habits, not off of like trying to flip things, but like at some point, you know, I did buy a record for $5 and sell it for 50 because I liked the record or I wanted to get something while I was in the store and I, ended up not wanting it later or being broke. I mean, when I sold a lot of the used records to really get the vibe of that was when I was unemployed after that record thing, uh, record distributor closing, I had to sell a lot of my records <laughs> to like pay my rent and stuff. So, you know, I was able to see like how to sell a collection and like I had worked in smash in DC at that point, And now I had worked at vinyl conference as well. So I kind of got what the day to day inside of a shop would be like, I had a realistic, like, vision. Like, I had experienced a fucking rain day and what it felt like to have a $0 day, but I already knew what to do on that day, you know? Like, that's the day that you're replacing poly bags or pricing records or stuff. I I didn't feel uncomfortable in the sense of I know what can potentially happen if business goes well. Um, I was never like, this is going to fucking go the way it went. That all happened later. Like, I just knew that Richmond had a really thriving punk scene, The shows were awesome. The people were really cool. And everybody loved the store. And the other option, if I hadn't ended up buying the store, was they were considering closing because they were moving. They were moving regardless. So I just really wanted to see that store stay open. Um, I got to be honest, I I was really lost at that point in my life. And I figured, like, you know, I had friends who basically got credit cards and maxed them out and 
<laughs> fuck themselves over. Like, what's the worst that could happen? I could try to buy this record store, and then if that sucks and doesn't work out, I could just close it and pay that off eventually. Like, you know, I wasn't going to trip out. It was it was scary, but I was also so young that I didn't have any like real responsibility or commitments that would fuck me over. So I was like, let's give it a crack. Worst case scenario, like I'll just move on and I'll, I'll figure that out later. Like there was nothing that like, you know, I didn't have kids or like a house or anything. It wasn't like, I wasn't like really fucking anybody else over by doing it. Um, right. My partner, who I'm yeah. with, Melissa, she, she was with me through all of it and she was supportive. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't like against it. Uh, my parents were for it. They were like nervous for me, but like they were being supportive of it. And like, everybody was just like, yeah, just try it out. And like, worst case, like, Hey, you can say you tried to run a record store and you can see why it didn't work rather than like, never know by never trying. So you got to take the leap at some point And I fucking <laughs> just went head first. So that was 2012. And that's like nine years. It's been nine years now. And how long did it, take you to realize that this was, this was something that you're going to do well. That was the funny thing. Like I, my expectations were so minimal to non like anything. Like I was looking at it just from like a total, like, okay, well, this is how much rent is. This is how much I should have on hand to buy a collection. And this is how much we kind of average on a day to day make. So, you know, man, fuck it. Like as long as like we're making a hundred dollars every day, like this will be cool. Um, <laughs> kind of fun to look back on because that's no way to live or survive. But at that point, it was like cool. So you know, I again, I'm making these numbers up. I like it was when that wasn't the issue anymore. That I was like, oh shit, okay. So you know, there's been a lot of like scary things along the way. Uh, you know, you have to pay out to buy cool collections sometimes and like maybe you do and the records are warped or something like you have to you you rapidly learn so you don't make the same mistakes twice everything that you could think of has happened at this point but like yeah like you know the wrong records or maybe the records were stolen or just like you know it you have to be very careful with your money you know you don't just not ask questions you have to ask, ask all the questions when you're like buying stuff from people and like you know, you build rapport. I think when I realized that the store was going well is when I like had a good rapport with my customers and I like knew who everybody was, if not by name, at least by face and like knowing what people were looking for, being able to order it or like, you know, at one point you go from, Hey, let me know what you want me to carry in the store to like, Hey, I just got this record and I think you're going to really like it. And I think when I was able to kind of cross that, you know, Obviously, you'll never know everybody. There's constantly new people coming in. But, like, at some point, you get, like, a good vibe of, like, how to deal with your customers and what people want. Uh, it seemed to be going more and more successful. Uh, and we started getting a better reputation uh, over time. I mean, the shop already had a great reputation. And that's why I thought it could keep going. Because people loved, mm. you know, Brandon Moore and what they were doing. It's really intimidating taking over from them. Because, like, they were really well-known in town. And, you know, I, I basically was not known by a lot of the folks who, like, really appreciated their store. So, you know, it was big shoes to fill. It was kind of terrifying at first. Your shop, it, it predominantly sells, like, punk rock, hardcore. You have a little bit of metal, a little bit of reggae. And you've been getting into, like, selling hip-hop and, uh, you know, doing hip-hop on uh, the label that you started. Um, 
but you know a lot of the folks coming in and out of there and and something like that helps in like kind of like trying to like keep a culture to music and that's something that you know in these times with kind of like the decline of record stores um a lot of that has gone away why do you think that you've been able like a place like vinyl conflict has been able to stay open while like you know the tower records and all that shit uh you know they can't it's a difficult thing for me to confidently answer i can only like Mm -hmm. say what i like assume um, but I mean, a store like Tower Records was never opened with any of that in mind. It was a business. Not that I'm not a business. You know, there's documentaries on why that store failed. Uh, they were. Well, yeah, they had particular problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think being able to take a step away, like my, you know, my obsession is going to record stores. So I love traveling and checking out new shops and talking to the owners and seeing their vibes and what they like to do in their stores. And it was very clear to me that the stores that did well and stayed open knew their customers. Their customers weren't a profit. Their customers were their, like, I use the word friend, uh, but like, you know, they knew what was going on. Maybe they weren't friends, but like they knew what was going on. Like they, they knew that there was the guy, you know, maybe you never fucking learned the guy's name, but he comes in on Saturday and he wants fucking jazz compilations. You make sure to have those jazz compilations set aside. And with a store like Best Buy or FYE, you're just ordering from a catalog and like, you know, they're restocking from a catalog. And like even working in the distributor end of things, I saw that, like, I saw that flaw as a, as a sales rep who was like trying to sell these stores. It was like, okay, I got the new catalog in. Do you guys want to order the new titles? And these stores would be like, I'll take two of each of your new titles. And then like in six months, they're like, here's the returns. And I was like, did you do anything? Did you do anything with these? Like, oh, you just ordered two of everything and then you returned what didn't sell and you just restocked what sold. And while that is and isn't true, I don't think like, you know, if you're ordering two of everything and returning what doesn't sell, I don't, I don't hear that you're paying attention to your customers. Right. Like at no point, at no point in the junction was like, Oh, but this new, you know, uh, raining sound LP came out. That band's popular in my city. Let me get 22 copies, blah, blah, blah. Like that never happened. It was just constantly like, I'll take two of the new titles. All right. I'm going to return what didn't sell. And like, it's just like, you know, listen to the albums, talk to your customers. Like it's very important. You don't just decide that a record is going to be cool and you can put it on the shelf. Like you got to hear it and know it's like got some substance to it. And that like, you know, if a new record comes out, I'm just going to use an example. There's this, uh, group Riki, R I K I believe they're from the Los Angeles area. It came out on like sacred bones. It's like kind of disco. It's like comes from the punk scene. The label like promotes both teams and everything. But if you talk to people in LA, that's like a really fun group. Everybody likes to go out and see. And when they toured, the tour did really well. And everybody who booked them on tour, like said they were like awesome to deal with and their show's good. I want to carry something like that on my shelf for my customers because I can play it for them and they'll get hyped on it. And there's a chance they'll get to see the band. And, you know, every band out there is releasing a record, but like what value is it if you spend $20 on it, but you maybe never get to see the band or, you know, maybe they aren't good live or like, maybe they don't fucking play at all. Like what if you're like, Oh, this band sounds cool. They're from Los Angeles and nobody in Los Angeles has heard of it. But, you know, I think it's worth putting the two seconds in to like kind of check it out and make sure that like it's something to be shared. Do you end up 
kind of developing a, a relationship with the labels too? Or do you buy direct from a lot of labels or, or do you go through like distributors and stuff like that? I do all of it. Um, yeah, I think that's like one thing that we do really well with our shop. And there's a lot of shops that do do it. But I think like being able to develop a relationship with the labels or, you know, we buy, we buy records directly from bands. Um, we buy them from labels and we buy them from distributors. There's different tiers of distributors too. There's like the distributors that just kind of sell like a small batch of labels that are all in the same area, like a New York distro that has like five or six labels. But then there's like distributors uh, that have like exclusive contracts. Then there's like secondhand mm-hmm. distributors where they're just buying popular titles to have a cool catalog. And then there's like these big one-stop distributors that carry everything, you know, and sometimes that's where you have to get stuff from because it's either more difficult to get or like they have exclusive contracts with people and stuff. We, we do a little bit of all of it. It's, you know, we don't have an unlimited budget, so we have to be careful, try not to over order or get stuff that's going to sit. Yeah. I mean, we do everything from, you know, buying off of local bands to touring bands to, you know, buying from the bigger distributors and getting like, you know, major label titles. You know, lately we've been getting some bigger stuff than we had before, but like even like a lot of major labels are doing like metal records. So that's kind of why we had to start doing it. It was like, I would rather not deal with the massive distributors, but like when a new metal record comes out on a big label, I can't hit that big label up. Like they don't even, some of these massive labels, and I won't name them, like, you can't even contact them. You shoot them an email, you never hear back. Well, I think we'd be kind of remiss to not mention, like, the situation we're in right now, like, with this pandemic, which has been going on for, like, almost a, with a lockdown from it, at least almost a year, um, pandemic longer. But um, how has that been affecting you, uh, I guess, in two realms? One, as a, you know, local business, but then also as part of this thing that... Um, I mean, obviously, the bands that are on these labels, they're not touring right now. Um, the sales are obviously probably affecting the labels. I mean, obviously affecting the labels. Um, but then you also have all these stores around the country that are, you know, kind of, you know, it's affecting an entire group of people. I mean, how, how has that been something that you've been able to uh, deal with? I mean, I remember when this thing started, like, there was like seven businesses that just closed down the first week of the, uh, the lockdown. Yeah. Was like fuck it <laughs> and you've been holding it together for almost a year now in this fucking shit so like how's this been we had to restructure the entire business i mean i don't know how to explain that i've like sometimes i try to like tell my friends about it and it just flies above some people's heads or it's just kind of like too long didn't read type stuff uh i mean it was terrifying it was absolutely terrifying i know i can sympathize with every business that i made the choice to close I mean, we just had to completely stop everything we were doing and just, like, reconsider it. I, you know, it's tough. Like, a lot of my friends still to this day are unemployed. Or, like, you know, they were getting unemployment, and now they, you know, it's less. Or, you know, they've gone on to a job that they're less excited about, maybe making less money. And, like, you know, buying records and stuff is way out of their budget. There's a lot of regulars we haven't seen in a year now uh, there's a lot of regulars who've sold us their record collection that were avid buyers. Like that end of it's been really tough to watch. Um, I I don't want to compliment having to be shut down for any like the reasons that have come out that have been like good. I mean, I'm happy to talk about them. It's just like there's been a lot of really weird negative things that were really hard to bear witness to. 
um, you know, even like labels stopping and stuff like that. Essentially what we had to do from out the gate was like, we had to just go completely online. You know, at that point I was doing like 40% online, 40 to 60% online, you know, depending on the month and what was selling. Um, And the rest was in store. And all of a sudden it wasn't like my online, it wasn't like my in-store decreased. My in-store just went, it went to 0% all of a sudden, like, and we're talking about March and April, like curbside pickup wow. wasn't a thing yet. People hadn't really started messing around. Everybody was fucking home. It was like yeah. scary to go to the grocery store. I mean, it's still scary to go to the grocery store, but it was like right. terrifying to go to the grocery store. Yeah. Uh, all I could really think was, okay, if I made this much online, I need to put everything online right now. And in theory, this is all the business I'm going to be getting. Um, you know, I had like, before that, I, I used to give my records a certain period of time before I listed them online to give my locals a shot, but that wasn't an option anymore. So I was like, all right, screw it. Everything goes online. And, um, sales just started pouring in. It was like, okay, well, this will, this will survive us. Mind you, this is before any stimulus is or unemployment. This is just like, okay. We were just out of desperation. We're like, all right, well, I can't sell this to anybody in Richmond anymore. I need to put this online. So, like, you know, obviously all of our collectibles that we were, like, holding to make, like, special for the store had to go online. Um, I think a criticism maybe people don't know from the outside that I'm – I think maybe they just need to hear verbalized. It's like, yeah, the price of records went up, but, like, hi, I'm me, store owner, and I don't have an income anymore from my public – I need to list this stuff for top dollar because I don't know when my store's ever going to reopen again. So yeah, we like, you know, out of desperation started listing everything we had at like what we found to be reasonable, but maybe higher than we were selling in store. Um, and it was just kind of like, it wasn't even like I'm listing this online for top dollar and I hope I fucking capitalize. It was like, I'm listing this on t- for top dollar and I hope anybody buys anything because I can't let anybody in my store right now, which isn't necessarily like how or what I wanted to do. Uh, well, that kind of happened across the entire, in, I mean, the entire economic system. I mean, prices went up because demand shifted drastically and people have to pay people, you know, like, um, yeah. it's one of those things where, you know, you know, like the decision to close down is obviously to protect people's health. But the flip side sure. of that is if people are home and healthy, but also can't pay for like anything, then, you know, that doesn't work either. So there has to be this like thing between the two where, where people can exist. Um, So you're talking about some of these labels closing down and stuff like this. Um, Do you think these are things that might come back after the pandemic or do you, I mean, do you think they're just done? I think the major, the thing I think I saw was a lot of the people that made the choice to stop, maybe were already struggling like maybe they were already having issue keeping the doors open. So yeah. like this was kind of like the nail in the coffin. I can't speak right. for everybody. Cause I, you know, I only know who I know. Um, but my, my assumption would be like, maybe if a business is already struggling and you know, there's been no bailout talked about this. Is, this is before an SBA loan or a PPP loan or any of that jargon was even introduced. You didn't know where the next paycheck was coming from. I think a lot of people jump ship because they're like, "Well, this isn't gonna. I can't. I can't struggle off of this." Um, it'll be. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, 
I, I can't confidently answer that one. What I will say is, so we did that for months, listing everything online, and we got, we ended up listing thousands and thousands and thousands of records online, and then all the stuff started hitting. So now people are getting the 600 plus unemployment checks. People are getting the $1,200 stimulus or 16 or whatever the original one was. So we had already put the legwork in at this point. I won't say up till this point, our mail order was good yet. It was just getting us by. We actually had gone from, you know, what I said, like whatever percentage of our stock that was online. Now 100% of our stock was online all of a sudden and everybody got their money and the mail order just started kind of pouring in and we got put into like a really like kind of surprising situation. All of a sudden we were really busy with online orders. All the stuff we had been doing for like two or three months started selling now, you know, and we didn't really anticipate that happening. We just like had just been doing what we were doing, you know, all of a sudden we're in a better position. Things kind of kept us afloat. We were able to be successful with it and you know, it hurt to not be able to see our locals. So we had to like come up with, you know, plans to make concepts like the curbside pickup a possibility. Cause now, you know, our locals wanted to shop for records, but we at this point did not feel comfortable letting them in the store. And still to this day, I can say, you know, firsthand, a lot of our customers still aren't comfortable coming in the store. So we had to come up with like ways to work for them. You know, like we had to come up with a curbside pickup. We did delivery real early on bringing stuff to people's porches for them and, you know, making the breakdown for the local mail order. But I mean, along the way, we've had so many fucking snags and headaches. For instance, we used to have a local pickup option on our website, both discogs and on, uh, like we had like a website for vinyl conflict, like a, uh, store and view page. And that was cool. Our locals loved it. But what ended up happening was everybody across the fucking globe was selecting local pickup because it was cheap. It was free. All of a sudden, we're canceling two out of three orders because the person's in Australia and they picked local pickup. We're not canceling, but we're like emailing, you know, we're emailing every two out of three orders being like, hey, we still need $26 to million record Australia and like hearing back from a portion of them. Oh, wow. So we eventually had to Why were they so we had local like, pickup? It was like a default option. You know what I mean? Like, uh, if you're looking for something, the, if you go on, like, if you go on Amazon and try to order something, it always shows you the cheapest option first. I don't think anybody was intentionally doing it. Ah, uh, okay, I got it, you. So it was it just created, accidentally, yeah. It created a ton of extra work for us. So at some point, we had to get rid of that. And then now we have locals thinking we're not offering local pickup anymore. So it's just like, it's constantly oh, like the Instagram DMs are really cool. That's helped us sell stuff to people. But at the same time, like the Instagram DMs, we're getting them 24 hours. I don't mean we're getting them all day, but I mean, like I'm getting Instagram DM at four o'clock in the morning from a guy in another country or a person in America who's awake and drunk. Uh, you know, it's like <laughs> answering them in the proper order or people asking for records from six months ago or, it's it's a lot of juggling. Like we're constantly emailing people and DMing people and, and trying to make it work. Like we're doing everything we can to get the people, the records they're asking for. But like, there's a lot of stuff that we have to juggle in the way <laughs> we've been able to handle it. Um, but that's really exhausting. Cause like, that's not what I ever signed up for. That's not what the store was like a year ago. And it's not certainly not what it was like nine years ago. Um, I'm just like playing customer service representative while still trying to price out new records and still trying to order new titles and keep up with right. the new releases. 
And, and yeah. how's the supply side of it been? Like, um, has the price of records from like you know, let's say the labels and stuff gone up? Um, has the has the supply gone up it. or down? All of it's been really bad. Like, so the price of everything has gone up. I mean, some places were unabashed about it. They're like, we're working, you know, it's technically hazard pay or whatever. We're filling these orders, you know. Maybe some place put some more money into their shipping, or some places raised everything a dollar. You know, we 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 did what they needed. Like it makes sense. I don't think yeah. it, I don't think a single person was being greedy. But the fill rates got really bad because along with all this mail order and stuff, titles that hadn't sold for years started selling out. So like a lot of my distributors, everything sold out. And I think we saw that across the map, not just records, but like skateboards, and bicycles, towels. And the grocery store, <laughs> paper towels. The yeah. same thing happened for records. So it's like all of a sudden, like everybody's home with their turntable and potentially some expense, expendable uh, income, maybe if they're able to, like people started ordering records and like all of a sudden, like if an LP came out and there was a thousand copies, that was enough to like kind of last for the band to go on tour and stuff. Now all of a sudden everybody's home and they put a pre-order up and they sold all a thousand copies out of pre-order. It's like, oh, wow, wow. this is. This is getting weird. And it doesn't work for every title, but, like, we've had so many titles in over 2020 that, like, we sold every single copy via mail order overnight. We got, like, 5, 10, or 20 copies of something, and the next thing you know, they're all gone. It's so amazing and how this has affected so many different reorder. things so differently. It's amazing how, like, it's it's made, you know, some things like, like, like that. Like, like, you know, I, I assume, like, Netflix is probably doing really well right now, you know, but like, sure. um, you know, other industries, it's just totally destroyed them. And, um, and the thing is like something like records, it pulls from a lot, like just to make a record, like you're pulling from a lot of things. Like, so like you actually have to have the, like, if you're talking vinyl records, you actually have to like talk about the supply of plastic and stuff like that, which actually might be you know, doing horrible during a pandemic because of, you know, like production or something like that, um, com comparatively, you know, but then like, you're also in the entertainment industry. So that is doing better during, well, the, the boxed entertainment, like the, you can deliver at home entertainment industry. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then I guess like the bands have, have to be, you know, odd because like they're not playing anywhere. So like their income is like, nothing but then the records are selling so <laughs> yeah so but i mean like that even weird back thing. it depends how you promoted yourself i mean there's no perfect equation to it but for the bands that maybe use this opportunity to like go to their fan base and be like hey we just dropped a new lp and we can't go on tour here's a link to our band camp it's band camp day and they're giving us 100 percent of our you know income blah 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 whatever on friday we get all the income we're putting the records on for sale a band like that's going to sell a ton of records. So like, you know, yeah. we experienced that with, uh, with, with the, uh, release of like the loud night record, you know, um, mm. uh, kind of going from there. I, I want, I definitely wanted to touch on this. Um, so you had your, your, your label that you were doing kind of before, um, the, uh, store headcount records. Yeah. Headcount. And then was it like two years ago, you, you started doing the hip hop one, the, uh, fantastic, fantastic damage. damage. Um, <laughs> In your punk store, technically, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> for most accounts, and this is a, a Richmond-based hip-hop label. How did you get into doing that? So we were already doing the Vinyl Conflict label, which is all Richmond releases. 
it's kind of a, you know, it's under that umbrella. Uh, I went to a show, uh, actually opened doing a DJ set uh, for the show at the Broadberry for Little Ugly Mane. He was kind of doing his, like, Return to Richmond show. He was like a buddy right. of mine, Travis, lived here for a long time. Um, and he asked me and Mark Osborne to, like, do a DJ set, like, to open the show. And, like, the show was, like, a split bill lineup. Division of Mind played. Uh, Narwhal's a sound play, which is, like, a noise act. Then Mutant Academy, Nicholas F., and Lil Ugly Man played. It was, like, this was really sick. Extremely diverse. Just kind of showcase. It was super fun. Um, I remember watching Nicholas F., you know, just from the side stage. Chuck had come out just a couple of weeks before it. The timing was just kind of crazy. Um, dude, he just like he just put down a set that I couldn't I couldn't believe. In fact, even the Mutant Academy dudes did. And Travis is extremely talented too. But we kind of knew that he was headlining, and like I was expecting that to be wild. Uh, even though he barely played, the show was sold out. It was crazy. But Nicholas F. just, like, went on stage and just, like, dropped my jaw for, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes. I just couldn't believe how much energy he had. He just, like, really compelled this audience to, like, go nuts. I don't know. I mean, we were just all at the show, and I was just like, holy shit, I need to get in touch with this guy. And, like, I just remember, like, Nicholas F. plays the show. It's psycho. It's sold out. And, you know, at, at his merch table, he's got a couple T-shirts. It's like, do you have a record out? And he's like, no. I was like, what's up with that new record? And he's just like, oh, it's online. And I was like holy shit, is anybody pressing it on vinyl? And, like, at that point, people were talking to him about doing it on vinyl, but I was like, I gotta, like, put my name in this mix. So, you know, I, uh, I reached out to him, and, like, we had, like, a meeting, and, like, I was like, dude, I do this label, I do these DIY releases, I release all these punk bands, like, yo, can, can I do your LP? So, you know, we, like, talked about it, and I kind of showed him, like, the DIY method of, like, how we run the label, and, like, what we do with it, and everything, and he was really into it. The album was finished already. We basically had to work out some new cover art, uh, which, you know, didn't take too long. And we just sent it off to press. And I just like, at this point, I don't think we had really completely come up with Fantastic Damage in full. I think that was just like under the Vinyl Conflict moniker. Oh, I got a copy of the record right here. Yeah. So Stuck, Nicholas F. Stuck actually is just on Vinyl Conflict Records. That's not even on Fantastic Damage. I just like, we got to release this record on the label. And at that moment, you know, he was getting ready to go. There's a tour after that show happened. Little Ugly Mane took Nicholas up on tour and they did like this big U.S. tour, basically. Again, at this point, I just like wanted to go and support Nick. And I, at that point, it kind of started coming together really fast, really, really, really fast. It was like all these artists from Richmond, like were kind of like unsigned and didn't really have any physical releases out. And everybody was killer. Everybody's really good live. Obviously, you know, I think people finally started taking notice. But at that point, like, obviously, I'm not saying, like, we discovered it. Like, I just don't think there had been any organization quite yet. Like, the guys mm -hmm. from Gritty City had their label, and they worked with their friend group. But a lot of artists outside of, if you didn't have, like, an attachment to some sort of label or something, you know, releasing a record on your own is really intimidating. You know, down the line, I even end up working with Gritty City, too. Uh, we did one of the LPs. And there's just so much good positivity going on. So it was great getting to collaborate with everybody and show, you know, 
they showed me how they did stuff and how I showed them how I did stuff. And we all learned from each other constantly, everything from like the show booking to like, you know, merchandising and stuff. And it was really, it was really nice to kind of like get in with all that. So at that point I kind of started fantastic damage and I released some back titles for Nicholas F. I did a little ugly main side project called bedwetter. Um, and then I was releasing the Noah O fan ran split or collaboration album, excuse me. I did a couple reissues for Noah O on cassette as well. And just very quickly, all of a sudden, we have like seven or eight titles on the Fantastic Damage label. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. Oh, it was yeah. cool being able to put out like a bunch of tapes. Oh, my, I did the Michael Millions, Hard to Be King cassette tape as well. And I did uh, an instrumental album for Name Brand. I'm even forgetting stuff, but there's everything now. It's cool just like kind of building a catalog and trying to get it all out there together. And now being able to like approach stores with like a catalog and getting Richmond hip hop across the country. Had a lot of really good help from friends too. Uh, Zach from who's working at Lampnighter and now does surrounding counties coffee. He took my stuff all over the country on a road trip and was like showing it to record stores and, you know, just like Richmond hip hop was just spreading. (laughs) It's really awesome. That's awesome. Well, kind of, um, wrapping up here, um, you know, usually I ask folks what they should do if, if if someone wanted to get into their shoes. I'm not really sure if that's applicable for you because it seems like <laughs> opening a record store is just so di- I mean, it's so dicey. You know what I mean? Like, um, sure. And like, there definitely is. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, but maybe, you know, maybe there is more room, um, <laughs> not to not think, but because what you do is just so unique, you know, um, and, and the space that you're in, um, I guess maybe the most applicable advice you could give would be like, what advice would you give to folks that, um, might be looking to try doing something that they, you know, they might be a little apprehensive about? do it. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I know what you mean. It's, it's tough. Yeah. It's really hard for me to like confidently say that because like every step I took along the way helped, you know, I don't think I can't say that like 19 year old me would have been able to do what 26 year old me did. Uh, even like coming up to the more modern things like doing the fantastic damage label I don't think I would have been able to start that label if I hadn't done headcount out of high school. And I'm not saying that you need to like, oh, if you didn't do a high school label, you're not going to be able to do a bigger label. I think my point actually is just start where you can work with artists that, you know, uh, make organic connections. I think, I think networking. All right. Here's my honest answer. (laughs) I think networking for the sake of networking is total bullshit. And I think like, treat everybody like you want to be treated. So like along the way, you're going to meet a lot of really interesting people and they're going to fall back into your life in ways that you never imagined. So just like everybody you meet, you know, treat kindly, uh, help out when people need help. And like, if you've got ideas, you should jump on them. Like being able to release stock. I don't think I would have been able to, if I hadn't already at that point had like 50 records under my belt. I can't say that the first 20 were even successful i was just like you know like i said i was the kid and i put some records out and 
I traded them with labels and, you know, I traded them and those records got warped and lost and I lost money and I was investing in more. Don't skip that step. You have to do that step too. Like, yo, start that first label that doesn't make any money. Put out your, put out your own band's record. Like go on that tour. I was listening to somebody on the radio the other day and they were talking about how like, man, you know, I hear about the bands and like, you got to go on tour and sleep in the basements. But like, I just don't think I can do that anymore, man. Like, I don't know how my band's supposed to get popular. And it's just like, you got to put that fucking sweat equity in there. You got to go fucking sleep in the basement. You got to go play your friend's basement in Philadelphia. And five people came out and drive home afterwards with no money. Cause that's how you learn. You got to like put the time in and do it all. You got to make fucking mistakes. You got to make mistakes. You got to make a lot of mistakes. And you got to like pay attention and learn from them. Like you can't be afraid to make the mistakes. Like it sucks to make a mistake. It hurts. It's embarrassing. But you got to make them. Like, I just think that, like, you got to gotta just chase it. Like, if you want to release a record, I think you got to release the record. And if it fucking loses a bunch of money, figure out why, you know? And, like, either fix that or make sure that that doesn't happen the next time. It's really easy to just, like, throw the towel in and be like, damn, maybe my band didn't do so well or the release I put out didn't do so well. Try to figure out why. Like, were you not doing X, Y, and Z or, like, you have to be able to call your, your weaknesses sometimes and learn from that. Like, I think you just got to try and like, it's trial and error. Oh yeah. And the second thing that I wanted to ask you was in the pandemic, like how do you fo- think folks can really kind of support like, you know, the artists and the record labels and the record stores they care about? I think the best way they can really do is like just to show them the love. Like, you know, not everybody has money to spend, but if you do have the money to spend, try to put it in the right places. Like, you know, if, if you have money to spend and you want to buy records, we're here for you. If you want to buy them directly from the band right now, because you know, they're off tour and that means more like that's good. That's not wrong. Like, you know, find that band's like web store. Like maybe, you know, I'm not saying not to buy from stores, but like maybe check and see if that band sells their merch first by themselves or like, you know, I don't know if there's like a, maybe a band you like, and you want to hear something new, look up the band's record label and check out the record label site and maybe order some stuff. Order a band, you know, order a record label t-shirt or order a record label, like some band, like order a band's t-shirt. If you can't afford it right now, you know, dude, sharing a band camp link is huge. Sharing a Spotify, make a playlist or just share like a link to the band Spotify. Like, I think we're all getting hung up on the fact that you think a, a oh my god if i listen to a record on spotify they're only going to make a fraction of a penny it's like okay but what if you listen to that album all day every day you know we'll make three pennies no you got to send it to like your friends you know (laughs) that was a joke right uh you gotta like (laughs) i was (laughs) that might not translate as a joke uh like send it to your (laughs) friends you know like when i when i hear a song i really like i get fucking stoked and i send it to like a dozen people and i'm like oh my god have you heard this band yet and you send it to a dozen people you know, some people are going to hear it. Maybe someone listens to it a few times. Maybe someone passes it to somebody else. All of a sudden, those plays are, are you know, they're starting to make some money. I think a lot of my friends who released albums last year said they saw some of the best digital sales that they've seen last year just because, you know, people had more time to be playing the music. Like, you know, make a Spotify playlist of your favorite stuff and share it. You never know when someone's going to hear their new favorite band, and that's going to spawn. Like, that Spotify playlist might have a song that your friend hears and they go to that website and buy a t-shirt. You know, if you can't support the store, like share our posts, 
or like, you know, if, if you like want to support the shop, but you can't, you know, get in there. Like if you see that, like we get a new record and the new enforced comes out next month or whatever. And when we post that, we have the record share that we have the record, you know, maybe we'll sell some more because you know, some, every little boost helps. Like that's the one thing I think they're trying to fuck us over right now being like social media and stuff is they're trying to make us pay for all this advertising. So like, right. you know, if you, if you, an individual shares the Bandcamp link or shares the store's page or shares a t-shirt sale or, you know, whatever, you're kind of scooting by this advertisement that they're trying to make us pay for. And that's just not cheap for us to pay for. Um, and we've had to out of necessity and it, it hurts. I can't afford to like sponsor all my ads. I haven't sponsored yeah. ad months. It is expensive and it's a very low return too. Like like the um, the the view like the view the views per dollar are not. I mean they're they're insane. Like it, it's low. I'll tell you the last time I sponsored an ad and I don't know if you remember. Oh no, maybe you saw it. I did a sponsored ad saying that we were trying to buy records. Do you remember this? Yes. And then for my personal Instagram, I was sharing all the responses. Right. Did you see that? No. Did you see that? No. So we we did a we did an advertisement being like we buy records for cash, and we sponsored it for, you know, I want to say a couple hundred dollars because we were trying to buy collections to, so we could resell stuff. And for an entire week, I got nothing but DMs of people trying to sell me their albums that they had recorded. Oh, um, I they're like, oh, I got a record. I got a record for you. You want intellectual property? Oh, like, shit. I can't believe I I can't believe I paid for this and like just for days and days and days like every 20 minutes someone was messaging us and like at first I like thought it was kind of like hip-hop beats but it wasn't it was everything people were like trying to sell me their like singer-songwriter stuff and like all of a sudden I'm just like well hold on I paid for this to happen this is psycho like I couldn't believe it I mean maybe it was the way I worded it but we're a vinyl record shop we want to buy records uh, and it turned into this like crazy thing where everybody was trying to sell me their MP3s. But I paid for that to happen. Very confusing. And this has been Various Things. I'd like to thank Bobby for taking the time to talk with me. You can follow Bobby's store at Vinyl Conflict on Instagram. For more episodes of this podcast, check out VariousThingsPodcast.com or by searching Various Things on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for listening.